The Rockford Symphony Orchestra Music Director finalist season continues this Saturday, October 22nd at 7.30 p.m. at the Coronado Performing Arts Center. This is Margot Stedman, Education and Community Engagement Director for the Rockford Symphony. Joining me today is Music Director finalist Yaniv Sigal, who will be presenting Deconstructing Beethoven this Saturday. Welcome to Rockford. Thanks so much, Margot. It's great to be here. Let's begin by hearing something about you, what you've been doing in the musical world, you're conducting, the, you do more than just conducting. Share with our audience a little bit about you. Sure. Well, uh, I have a long and unusual road to music and also actually to this country because uh, both of my parents are immigrants. My mother emigrated from Poland and my father from Israel. So my sister and I grew up in New York City and actually English was not our first language. So we spoke in my, I spoke Polish to my mom and Hebrew to my dad. And later on we picked English up in school. Um, and my mom is a violinist. She played in the New York Philharmonic for 40 years. To put that kind of in context as to when women started joining orchestras, she was only the sixth tenured female in the orchestra. That's crazy. That was in 1972. So, yes, very, very recently we realized everyone can play instruments, <laughs> it seems. Uh, and my father is a violin maker, and they met through that world because she was shopping for a bow and she went to his shop. Somebody told her, watch out, he's single, and <laughs> there, there you have it. Uh, so, growing up in New York, surrounded by, you know, one of the best orchestras in the world. Yes. That's kind of my, uh, the bar <laughs> that I would like to set. I just have that sound in my ears uh, from a very young age. And I played violin starting at age four. And then my sister and I joined the Metropolitan Opera Children's Chorus. So we sang operas on the one of the greatest stages of the world with just, um, you know, Samuel Ramey, Don Upshaw, you, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went on tour as an 11-year-old in the Secret Garden as a little actor singing uh, the role of Colin. So when I was 11, I went on the road for one whole year. Wow. Yeah, it was a little different than... Yeah. (laughs) Right? Uh, And then back, you know, this is still childhood, but then I acted in a play by Tom Stoppard at Lincoln Center. I was doing some commercial work, voiceovers, things like that. Still kept on practicing violin. And then uh, eventually my voice changed and... (laughs) That's just an awkward time. Yeah. Uh, And music was always there. And I got deeper into that again. Um, I started conducting in college. Uh, I did, well, that's even, actually, I started conducting even earlier than that because when my mom would bring me to the symphony, there was this uh, backstage access to the orchestra box. And she would bring me in right before the concert started. I would sit on the steps. She would go down onto stage, play, come back for intermission, take me backstage, and so forth. And apparently, I, I, I don't know how old I was, but it, uh, one of the violists who sat on the other side of the stage could see me see you. and said, oh, it was so cute. Yaniv was waving his arms around with the conductor. <laughs> and sh- she, was, it, she was really embarrassed, actually. She's like, oh, you can't do that in a concert. You can't. <laughs> and now those videos go viral on right, YouTube, exactly if that, only. <laughs> if only we, had, we didn't have uh, cell phone cameras back then. Right. <laughs> uh, so, and, and I actually did take a conducting class in my pre-college school, but then in, in college, uh, I really started conducting seriously and I was composing 
after college, I started an orchestra in New York City called the Chelsea Symphony, which is still around. I eventually went back to grad school at the University of Michigan to study conducting and composition. And since then, I've been doing the the itinerant music musician's life, which is a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. So what motivated you to reach out to the RSO when you heard about our music director opening? So uh, a couple things. Uh, first of all, I live in the Midwest. Uh, I'm, you know, Ann Arbor is now home. I stayed there after graduation. And so the idea of, well, so often I have to fly someplace to get mm-hmm. to work. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's flying across the ocean and <laughs> it takes a day and a half to get there. And so... You know, I'm always attuned to when something is close to home. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I was excited about that. Uh, I think that the city uh, has a character of its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of these places that is big enough to have its own vibe mm-hmm. while being an hour, an hour 20 or whatever we are from Chicago or from other major cities. That's similar, again, to where I live right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Ann Arbor, which is about the same size as Rockford, and we're about 45 minutes from Detroit. Mm-hmm. So it's it's looking at the same kind of thing. It's, it's like valuing what that is... That Midwest culture. Yeah, valuing what is mm-hmm. local, valuing what we can offer in, in a city like this. And then periodically, if we want to go to see some major sure. opera or whatever, you can, you can go and do it. Uh, so I really like that. Also, I saw Henry Fogel was on the mm-hmm. search committee, and... Uh, he is kind of a guru for yes. conductors in, in America. So you kind of know that the search process is going to be legitimate. <laughs> and so it, it just, it, all those you know boxes got checked. And I remember when, I, when it was announced that I was one of the finalists, people came out of the woodwork and said, oh, I know that orchestra. It's, it's really good. And so I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's awesome. So uh, it was, it, it was uh, what do you want to say? It corroborated the yeah, feeling that I had. Yeah, just confirmed everything. Yeah, that's great. I'm uh, obviously, I'm a transplant to Rockford and very proud. We were patrons of the orchestra before I started working here and are just so happy that we got landed here when we moved for my husband's job. So we know that the music director plans the concerts, conducts the orchestra. Um, in your mind, what are the other facets of the music director job? What, what are, what's important as it relates to the symphony organization and to the community? Yeah, that's a really important question for where we are, but also, you know, how Americans' orchestras operate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some places in other countries where you might have a principal conductor, and that's actually separate from the artistic director. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in that case, the role is really pretty much conduct the orchestra. But here, I think it's much more than that. Mm -hmm. I think that the music director is one of the main faces, if not the main face, of the orchestra. And the way I view that is I would like it to be like a family kind of thing. Mm. And if you don't know anybody in the family, then how do you feel like you're part of that family? So I would see myself as music director as somebody that people can get to know mm-hmm. and I would like to get to know them because then when we get to share beautiful music, it's... It's personal. It's per- Exactly. Yeah, that's lovely. Are there any other facets besides the conducting and the planning that you feel are particularly important, getting to know the community, anything education do you see part of your role, any of that? Sure. So uh, I think that in terms of 
education or inviting people into the fold, what I would love to be able to do more is play my fiddle, <laughs> play my violin out with with people in the orchestra or in other settings around the uh, the town to say, hey, look, I still, you know, I wave my hands, but I'm also still a performer in a, mm-hmm. in a different way. Uh, and I feel like that's sometimes maybe the conductor seems like there's a, there's a wall, like mm. the, 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 the maestro myth is, is some kind of exalted figure. And okay, maybe there is some of that. <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, I, I want to say, no, 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 this is, this is, we live in a different time than say Toscanini, you know, the famous authoritative conductors. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not really in that time anymore. Mm-hmm. It's much more a collaboration on the podium and rehearsals. And so I see that it's a collaboration also between me and the people who are coming to the concerts or, uh, you know, working with students who may not have been at concerts, like to show them that I can do this. I love doing it. And maybe you can, too. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about the program that we're going to hear this weekend, Deconstructing Beethoven. Why did you choose this particular program and what pieces are we going to hear? That's a big question, yeah. so we might need to break it down some. Sure. So as uh, our listeners might be familiar already, uh, this season, the programs are kind of crossover hybrid mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of like classical and beyond, shall I say. So like all the other candidates, I had to think up programs where we show this intersection between classical music and let's just say music mm-hmm. of whatever. Uh, so this particular program u- uses Beethoven as kind of yeah, a waypoint. I mean, he was such a seminal figure in music history, or maybe even history, that he's affected the course of music afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have somebody like that, the music that comes after is either directly related or because something else is directly related, it is indirectly related, right? You know, like that, or, or Rite of Spring changed the, the course of history. Uh, you know, when, frankly, when John Cage started saying, what is music? That changed what we thought we could do with music. Mm-hmm. And you can, go, you can go to these figures uh, and point to them or either the, their pieces or their output, output and say things changed after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Beethoven living at a time when the idea of the romantic artist starts to take over and the idea that you can put emotion into music and it's not just some beautiful classical thing that you should gracefully listen to or dance to, uh, he lived at this pivotal time, which just happened to align with the fact that he was such a creative genius to create what he became. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if whatever piece we had started with of Beethoven, we still would be able to demonstrate this facet of, of this man. We do start with the concert with Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, which is... Uh, <laughs> what should I say? It's fantastic. I it's mean, my personal favorite of his. It, you're you're not alone. I think that I actually said this to the orchestra yesterday in rehearsal. It is one of these remarkable pieces that I don't know anybody who comes away saying I didn't like that. There's such a range of emotion in it. There's a range of emotion. It is uh, an unusual symphony in his output. 
uh, because of the the real reliance on dance-like rhythms. Uh, a little-known fact about Beethoven, which is directly relevant to this piece, is that he actually arranged a whole set of Irish songs oh. in the years leading up to this piece. And so uh, that first movement, which has the dum ba dum bum ba dum bum ba dum bum is very much a jig. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. that last movement, which is like this ball of energy, uh, he uses his own material, which he had written as a little addendum to one of the songs that he wrote. Oh, wow. Absolutely comes out of a song he wrote about a year or two earlier. Interesting. So uh, he's got these ideas of folk rhythm. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got the most famous second movement, perhaps, the Allegretto, uh, which, is not, which is famously not a slow movement, uh, which was so popular at its first performance that they had to play it again before the audience allowed them to go on. Mm -hmm. So, great piece, right? So we start with absolutely a great piece. It might be confusing for some audience members who are used to having the big symphony on the second half. In our case, it's on the first half. I have to say, I was putting something together for this program a month or two ago, and I, I called Matt in our office and I said, is there an error on the website or are we doing it? And he goes, no, that's on purpose. And then I went back and read, but I had, I was, as I'm clicking in and it was funny. So I, it, I think for a traditional concert goer, it, it does feel, I noticed it. Right. You know, it yeah. Like, oh. Well, we have, for, well, it's really important that you're not late to the concert because yeah, there you go. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to miss There's it. No overture. <laughs> nope. 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 <laughs> Maybe I'll talk starting. for a few minutes just to make sure that the latecomers are seated. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we're diving right into it. It's unusual for us now in, a, in an age when programming is often codified as this yeah. over, overture or new piece, hope soloist and and you know meat and potatoes on the second half. Yep. Uh, but it's very much on purpose. That's the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tell us about that. Well, the point is, we're starting from Beethoven and then going beyond. Going forward. And so deconstructing in this case is what elements of Beethoven do people did people uh, embody in their own music, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we have an overture on the second half. It opens the second half by a French woman who is mostly unknown as a composer. Her name was Louise Farenc. And... Uh, she was an incredible pianist and was born to a very artistic family of sculptors. And so she was cultivated in, in the arts. But to be born in the early 1800s as a woman, as talented as she was, the avenues of... Not a lot of options. Not a lot of options. Yep. Uh, so she became the first fully tenured piano faculty, female, at the Paris Conservatory. Wow. And... After her, I mean, there wasn't another one for like 100 years. Uh, so, Which really shows how truly special she was. She was incredible. And so she did write a, f a fair amount of works, mostly piano. And we're playing her first overture for orchestra, which is written, oh gosh, I think 1834. And so she was around 20 years old. Wow. Already married. <laughs> married at 17. To, an, to a very good match, a, a flutist and a, a lover of music, and together they compiled an anthology of piano music that served kind of as a textbook for generations wow. to come. So, very creative person, clearly. 
there weren't also many opportunities for orchestra performances. So people weren't writing that much orchestral music mm -hmm. in Paris. Mm -hmm. But what's important about her and the reason why she's on this program is in the 1830s, with the exception of Berlioz, the French composers are pretty much writing lighter style music. Mm -hmm. The popular genre of the time was light operettas or cafe music or something. Like, there was no real place for serious, should I quote, serious music. What did that mean? So what that means for her is looking to the German model, looking to Schubert, looking to mm -hmm. Mozart, Haydn, but really Beethoven as well. Mm. Uh, she has more of a melodic voice than Beethoven did, but the way she structures her music and the the emotional content and weight behind it is intense. Has a Beethoven so, feel. As it has a Beethoven feel. Mm. So uh, she certainly would have heard some of his music. She certainly was familiar with his piano repertoire. She had to be, yeah. yeah. So right. this is this is why she's on our on our concert. And then we end the program with a very unusual piece. But a wonderful, wonderful piece of music, too. Tell us about it. Uh, in place of your traditional concerto, we have a piece called Beethoven 9 Symphonic Remix, which kind of gives you a hint already. And the soloist is also the composer, and his name is Gabriel Prokofiev. And I'm sure Prokofiev rings a bell for many of our listeners. And in fact, this is Sergei Prokofiev's grandson. And he's based out of London, and... He is a DJ and, a, and an electronic musician. And even his DJing is not uh, traditional because mm -hmm. he's interested in the intersection between acoustic live music and electronic music. So for this symphonic remix, he uses the last movement of, the, of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony as the jumping off point, as the starting point for his work. He takes melodic ideas, cells, uh, themes from that movement, manipulates them, loops them, layers them, shifts them, uh, messes with the harmony quite a bit. And so it turns into this kind of, I wouldn't say modern, but it's like almost like a dance piece. Hmm. And then uh, after a few movements, he comes in performing electronics together with the orchestra. And the sounds that are being created or were created by him were sampled chorus so he took the chorus numbers from from the last movement had them singing it in multiple languages oh wonderful uh, and it's manipulated to the point that you will never understand a single word but you can kind of tell that it's electronic voices and it's just a really cool uh, and moving piece because I mean, you can't help but feel the groove. Right. And you know what it's based on, and yet it's... Everyone knows that Ode to Joy melody. But it's so transformed, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. So what will we see on stage? What can the audience... What does this mean <laughs> that Gabriel's doing electronics in front of us? Yeah, so it's a very different type of performer than somebody playing... Uh, a, violin? a violin concerto yeah, or sure. a piano concerto and like you kind of can visually see those pyrotechnics mm -hmm. and in this case all of the electronic parts have been written already mm -hmm. and he doesn't have to perform them live he, he does perform them live but he's triggering them right he is 
He'll have a laptop. He might have some MIDI controllers. He'll have some effects controllers. And so he's able to modify live things like tempo, balance, effects, sound, uh, all those things. So he's going to be sitting at a table out in front of the orchestra. He'll have a laptop. He'll have some electronic devices. And uh, he's, he's absolutely modifying the sound as we go even though it looks like he's just pressing buttons. Right. Because and then it's all aligned with what the orchestra is doing. Yeah, and then that's so. that's a little complicated because Yeah, I would imagine. Uh, you know, there there the choice there when you're trying to synchronize electronic music is who goes with whom. Right, yeah, right, who leads. And so this is a bit of a combination. He can he can modify the tempo mm-hmm. of his stuff as we go. This is programmed in that way. Uh and we can communicate about whether we needed to move one way or another. Uh, as far as conducting, there's one thing I don't have to worry about, which is very unusual in a concerto-like piece, which is I don't have to worry about balance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. he's going to take care of that uh, mm-hmm. because he will hear it. He'll he, he's, he's right where I am, and if it's if it's a problem, he can just adjust a fader one way or another. Right. And <laughs> that's it's a little bit unusual, you know. Uh, plus. I mean, he can go really loud. So we have no, we, we don't have to worry about covering the soloist for like once in my life. <laughs> I think what's exciting about this to me is that, you know, orchestras are working so hard in bringing in new audiences. And with those new audiences comes a new energy. You know, it, it's not going to, things throughout history change. And mm-hmm. so we're kind of in this time of change. And so we've already been seeing it as new people come in. Where do I clap? And more energy in the hall and more clapping. And and so this program is kind of taking it to that next step where we're going to have energy, not just from the audience, hopefully, but also from the stage in a new way and bringing this as we're kind of reemerging post-COVID almost into this new era. What does this look like? And so I'm excited about this concept. Yeah, I think that those are all really valid points. I would also add that there's another element of deconstructing Beethoven, which is going on in the academic setting, mm. not so much on the on the concert stage, but in our uh, education of musicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in the in Western classical music have almost exclusively taught classical music through the lens of a few of these really important figures. Sure. And without taking anything away from them, we sometimes think about Beethoven to the exclusion of the others who also contributed. Mm. And so I think that having something like Gabriel's music here that says that's, that's written just about 10 years ago is exactly that. It's saying Beethoven's really important, but here's some music that's relevant and contemporary to how we're listening to things today. That's awesome. Well, I'm really excited about this. I hope that our audience is excited too and will all come out. And I feel like in my role as education director, I would be remiss if I didn't also just mention that you and Gabriel are going to two schools this week and are demonstrating this intersection of live music and electronic music for students in our region, which I think is really exciting. You're taking your fiddle out there and doing what you said. So that's also very exciting. We'll be sharing pictures of that on social media for our audience and want them to know that that's happening as well. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having this conversation. Tickets are still available for this concert, Deconstructing Beethoven. It happens this Saturday, October 22nd at 7.30 p.m. at the Coronado Performing Arts Center. We want to say a special thank you to the sponsor of this concert, Stillman Bank. 
and go to rockfordsymphony.com or call us at 815-965-0049 for tickets or more information. This is Margot Stedman, and thank you for listening.